What up guys, welcome to Archive TV. I'm Shane. I'm Fletch. And we are back for another strain review, checking out yet another new flavor pack hybrid. What are we looking at today, Fletch? Double motorboat from Canarado, crossed with flavor pack. Found. Oof. Right and the double motorboat's like pretty, pretty chemi, you know. Little MSFV sour type gas terps. Yeah. Definitely getting a hint of that right away on this one, but you can already, you can already right as soon as you crack that smell the, the flavor pack influence too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely kind of right in between, isn't it? Yeah, I'm getting a little bit of everything right mm -hmm. off the bat on that. Yeah. Steal nug from you. Uh, some pretty weed, man. Like a lot of the shit that we've been looking at. I mean, as you guys can see here on the close-up, really, really nice uh, trichome coverage on this. Really, really nice texture, sticky. I wouldn't say like super, super dense golf ball, but it's definitely not airy. But it's, it's man, like it's kind of like good a diesel shit lately. texture. Yeah, just but it's diesel, but a little bit gummier, a little mm -hmm. bit more body to it, you know. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, pack a little bit of this in the bowl. Definitely unique. I mean, like you said, it smells like both. I'm getting more, all kind of mixed together. I'm getting more of like an OG type thing when I'm breaking it down though. It's in there, but it's got like a floral earthiness to it also. I'm gonna go in here on first little rip out of the dry pipe, see what it's tasting like. First off, that is a really smooth, gentle smoke. I mean, you can you just rope this thing as hard as you want and it doesn't even tickle a little bit. Nice. I think it was grown with uh, GH3 part and aerated compost teas. So okay. like worm casting teas and, and uh, guano teas or seabird guano. Um, how long is this? We use lime also. Uh, probably 10, 10 and a half weeks. I'd have to, you know, check. But it's probably, yeah, it's probably about, 10, you know, 70 days or so. It's a little bit longer flowering than most of the other flower flavor pack hybrids. I'm definitely getting more of the flavor pack thing on the, on the, on the flavor on this one. Yeah. Hence the name. Definitely a, a complex aroma, like he said, getting a little, a couple notes from everything here with this one. But I'm definitely getting that, uh, you know, sweet, cushy, more Hollywood type flavor, more flavor pack style, you know? Mm hmm Yeah, super, super sticky. It's a scat pack, so I'm gonna call it. It's all motor. <laughs> about 20 seconds of hang time on that one. I really maybe not, do. Maybe not quite that much. <laughs> I, really, I really do think getting the getting the press and like really doing a perfect test on that would be an interesting way to go about, you know, throwing a little hiccup in these reviews. For sure. Top me off on this one. I know that Adam said that this one washes really good and I know that uh, Chris, damn it Bobby, who does the washing, um, he says this is one of his favorites as well. Yeah. For, for hash particularly, which makes sense. I mean, you know, a lot of people like um, 
sour dub. Pretty, for a pretty greasy, not surprising. You know? mm. Yeah, I'm sure it makes a pretty wet hash in general. Yeah, I mean, I get like a, a chemi flavor pack on the dry hit, for sure. It's just like a, it's a little bit of that sourdough note. I think as far as the structure, probably leaning a little bit more towards that side of things too. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I'm definitely get, getting a lot of the, the flavor pack when it comes to the smell on this one. Yeah, I get like a sourdough flavor pack of flavor. It's like got a little bit of that potpourri, dank flavor pack thing to it. Is the dominant flavor, but there's also like that sourdough, earthy, diesel-y kind of chemi thing in the back too. Kind of has like a motor breath 15 kind of look to the buds a little bit. I'd say it's diesel-y, chemi, diesel-y yeah. kind of looking. Definitely, sure. definitely as far as the way the, the buds look, it's leaning more towards that way. The way it's smoking, for me, it's flavor leaning pack. a little bit more flavor pack. I agree. I'm getting that that sweet, almost like, uh, like cushy, but almost like vanilla or something, which always reminds me more of like the, the pure cushions and that type of thing, mm -hmm. you know. Totally. Mm. Yeah, definitely would like to try some hash from this. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, just like some varieties, they just, the flavor really stands out when you put it in the hash compared to maybe the flour. We look at like all the all the when you look at the lineage of this one, like all the parent strains, like they're all they're all notorious for being you know stuff that runs well for hash. Exactly. Mm. That one lingers a little bit, huh? Yeah, it's kind of a mix of many of the things that it's named basically. It's not do particularly dominant one thing or the other. It just kind of tastes like all of them mixed together. It's a little soury, a little like sour diesel-y. It's a little chemi. Um, it's a little OG-ish, and it's a lot of flavor pack just because it's half flavor pack. So it's kind of tough sometimes too. Like when you're when you're you know coming up with these crosses and shit. It's like you you kind of it's cool to be able to kind of pick apart you know and taste everything in that one strain, but Oftentimes that means that it's not going to be as accentuated in any one direction, so it might not stand out on its own. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But I guess more when you know what's in it, you, and you're kind of you're you're almost like blindly tasting. You know what I mean? You're feeling with your taste buds, and mm -hmm. then you're kind of trying to grab at things. It's like a little bit different experience where I appreciate it more, maybe knowing what it is than if I just smoked it, you know, blindly. Totally. Yeah, it makes you appreciate what it took to get there, um, you know, even if it's not necessarily uh, that much more um, accentuated in any traits of the parents. 
It's like it's not more diesel-y than diesel, and it's not more motor breath or anything. It's just kind of a mix of all of them. And I, I mean, when you're crossing varieties that aren't very related to each other, you tend to get that pretty often, where it's a, a nice mix of everything, but it's not particularly standing out in one way or the other because you're taking, you know, even if they're not too IBL or inbred lines on either side of the equation, you're just taking two things that are not really closely related. So most of the progeny are gonna be the 50% in the middle. They're not gonna be the extreme ends of the spectrum. That makes sense. And I guess that's maybe when you get something really unique and crazy is when you do kind of hit the lotto and you get totally one end of the spectrum with you know the other end of the other spectrum. That yeah, if you make an F1 unique. and find something really unique that stands out from the rest of the pack in it, you either got really lucky in finding the outliers in an F1 hybrid, or you had pollen contamination and something so else gave a little bit of pollen and that's that's why that one plant's really, really good and then all the other ones are kind of really consistently whatever they are. And sometimes that's the best, you know, accident that could possibly happen. Because you really don't know when you're crossing stuff together how good the cross is gonna be. So you kind of just, you know, using anything and getting good results is good breeding at the end of the day to a certain degree. Unless you only have one other thing going, you may not even necessarily know exactly what happened or exactly what it is at the end of the day, but what happens then if it's so fucking good that you want to keep it? Well, well you may have never thought to make that hybrid. Let's say you have 10 different varieties in a room and you're trying to pollinate with this one main plant, 99% of the seeds in the room are that one. But then it's like this other plant that you don't ever want to think you are going to breed with because it was like, I don't know, some old plant someone gave you that you're keeping for nostalgia, not because you think it's the one. And uh, that plant unknowingly drops a little bit of pollen, Hermes a little bit, and then it, the 1% of the seeds in the room came from that plant. That's the one plant that you weren't planning on breeding with, and that's the plant that made the best plant that came from the seed, the 1% of the seeds from the 100% root. And so you just never really know, and that's why we kind of just shotgun approach. Just, I'll take anything and hybridize it and grow the seeds out of it. I don't have a plan that just because the parents are this or that, that it's gonna be the best. If, if the parents are the best, you have a higher probability it's gonna be a really good hybrid but it doesn't guarantee that it's going to be better than using a sister to one of those plants in the same hybrid you think it could be a situation sometimes too where you kind of you kind of have have a variety that you've been working with you think you know kind of all the different ways that it expresses itself but maybe there's something kind of lying dormant underneath that and then like you said maybe you accidentally cross it with something else or you just you know decide to do something randomly and then something pops up that you're not used to seeing from either one of the parents. That's right. You think it's just like the right mixture? Yeah. Just yeah, just recombinant genetics. Just there's, you know, millions of genes essentially that are dictating all the traits in this. And unless you outcross with enough different varieties, you'll never really see the true range of... Um, traits that any of these plants could pass down. 
like if I only ever crossed OG with only one type of plant, I'm, it doesn't mean I'm going to see the full range of expressions that could come from an OG cross because it may require some other rare variety to combine with OG to get some dormant gene to finally turn on and make the next roadkill skunk or whatever it is. You just don't really know what recessive genes are hiding in any of your plants DNA that when given the right mate will become a dominant gene in the progeny and now look feel smoke smell whatever trait you're talking about having changed becoming now a dominant trait in the progeny that's probably what you're talking about a lot of times when you say oh you know this one makes good hybrids it's not necessarily like everything that we cross this to it dominates and just becomes a you know a, a slightly different version of that it's like everything that we you know a lot of the things that we cross this with for whatever reason just tends to produce unique hybrids that you know may not even be reminiscent too much of either one of the parents but just always seems to create something cool exactly i mean that's kind of ideal as a breeder that you would have something that you can hybridize and it creates new flavors more variety yeah because yeah. that's a, you know that's how you can only really way you can make a new smell or flavor instead of trying to reproduce a good smell or flavor because essentially that's your two goals with breeding in general unless your goals are like monetary and you're trying to get bigger yield or something but if you're trying to improve like qualitative in terms of smell and flavor just as one set of traits <clears throat> um your goals are really going to be how can i make this taste better or you know how are you going to increase the either the how often those genes are or how different they are so like, let's say I'm trying to recreate OG. I don't want to cross it with something and then not end up with OG. I want to either recreate OG Kush in seed form, or I'm trying to cross it with something else to make something newer and better than either parent. That's the goal. The last thing I want is to take OG, cross it with something else, and get watered down OG. Yeah. Or watered down any strain. So, um, yeah, that's really the goal with breeding, in my opinion, is to either preserve a good smell or flavor that someone else maybe created or a good seed you found, like lemon peel or any of those things. You just found a good one, and now I want to recreate it in seed form so I don't lose the genetic long term. But then I also want to cross it with other stuff, and I don't, I don't want to just recreate that smell. I want to make something. I want to make lemon pineapple now or whatever, not just lemon. So you got your lemon now. You want to make some lemon cream pie. Whatever it is, yeah. You want to you want to cook with your ingredient, not just preserve it. And then the last thing you want to do, like I said, is water it down. Yeah. Well, that was always my beef with with GDP. I used to always say GDP is just watered down Urkel. And and in most circumstances, it probably is slightly less flavorful and less Urkel smelling and flavor than Urkel is. It's very close, but yeah, it's probably a little bit less skunky, a little bit smoother with the similarly purple kind of Urkel smell. But yeah, the Urkel had a little skunkiness to it, whereas, the, whereas the GDP did it. In that that thought process with crossing it with the Big Bud, I've never tried straight Big Bud, have you? 
they, I mean, there's been a lot of them over the years, but the big buds I always saw were always like just some Canadian hay type weed, some big commercial. I, I've bug. never tried it, uh, but I'm assuming, you know, the, the thought process there yeah. was cross these tiny little purple grape nuggets with something that could hopefully increase the yield a little bit. And Theoretically, yeah. Much of that I'm not even sure how much of that story is true in terms of what was crossed with Urkel to make GDP. Is. Who knows if it was a bag seed or an actual breeding project or any of that, because I'd have to ask Caleb. He probably would know because he really investigated the whole purple scene so i have to ask him but yeah i mean who knows but you would think that, that would be the goal you got a low yielding plant that people really like the quality of so you're going to increase the yield and in most circumstances without growing through a big enough population you're probably going to end up with a little bit watered down version of that original plant you're trying to preserve in seed form and then it'll take breeding back to the mother in terms of bx or F to the line with your best individuals to move it to start getting stuff better than the original parent. The F1s are always going to be kind of a little bit watered down, especially if you're crossing for yield or, or plant structure or something like that. Because you've got to select for plant structure. You can't like, you might make the F1 and there might be one of them in there that was almost as tasty as the Urkel. But it probably also grows and performs like the original Urkel, which is the whole thing you're trying to get away from by making the big bud cross. So you, can't move you inevitably, yeah, it's yeah. pretty tough to, to get both. Oh, I found one that tastes just as good as Urkel in the F1 and it yields twice as much. It's not. So now you need to take your best yielding Urkel-ish one from the F1 and back cross it to the mother or out cross it to one of its uh, siblings. That was also like if you took your F2 or your F1 there and take your you know biggest, fattest, nicest structured male and cross it with your most urkely heavy yielding female and then grow those out, you'll probably find some big plants that smell and taste like Urkel in there. And you'll probably find them more consistently than you would in the F1 because you already selected through the F1 and found the most urkel female to use and the biggest, you know, you already made a selection. It's just every generation of selection that you continue to move in the direction that you're trying, the more, the higher the probability you're going to continue finding plants that are in that direction. Probably helps if you're focused on one trait at a time, right? Like first focus on dialing in flavor, then grow out all those and find something that yields a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, rather than trying to go in two different directions at once and just hope they converge. That's and right. If it were that easy, everyone would be doing it. Right? And everyone would be successful, yeah. right? And it's just, it's not that easy. And you kind of have to let the plant do the talking too. It's like, all right, well, I got to try a bunch of things. You know, that's what I'm saying. It might be... It might be the BX1 that you find those plants in based on your selection. It might be an F2 generation you find that in. It might be an F2 cross to an F1 that you found the best version of this type of plant you're trying to breed. It might be an F4 cross to that. It could be anything depending on the amount of work and time you're willing to put into it. <clears throat> and whether you're trying to recreate or improve upon a certain variety and its traits and whether those traits are yield flavor potency and like you said it's extremely difficult to 
to try to improve two of those traits within one generation. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's simply luck if you were to find one that is also the very best plant that you love and has all the qualities of the original parent plant or better. It's just so rare that your choices are basically to do generation incrementally improving a variety or growing 10,000 seeds out and hoping that your one in 10,000, that's the perfect plant, is in there. And both of those are like relatively good strategies. Yeah. Um, it's probably just going to take less resources in terms of um, space to do it incrementally. You can incrementally do it just with a small garden and making selections of 20, 30, 50, 100, 200 plants. You can probably over a couple or few years really improve a variety and make it consistent. Um, whereas like uh, to grow 10,000 plants out and take 10,000 clones to keep a clone of everything to find the one really good one is you're gonna need a really big facility to do that but you'll get a lot of work done in one generation. And then you find that one really killer plant from 10,000 plants and now you can do your next generation of work from that. And you're just, you're just kind of speeding up the process because you went through a larger population faster. Whereas the other process is where you're kind of eliminating population to go through by breeding with the plants that, you're, that are in the direction you're trying to breed. Mm -hmm. And you're just reducing that you're increasing your probability by reducing the the plants that don't fit your criteria and both of them people have equal levels of success it's just what's your breeding goal what's your resources available and how do you think you're going to accomplish this goal either the fastest with the least amount of resources or the most efficiently in whatever manner that is do you think given a long enough timeline do you think there's a limit on what you could do with the genetics of a certain variety as far as, okay, say I give you a stretchy OG. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, could you work with that long enough to get it to look like anything else that you wanted to? Like a Probably, that, yeah. You know I mean, mean, I haven't done it specifically, but I would imagine so. Could we? Could you start with just regular, you know, 2004 Humble Urkel, those tiny little golf ball nuggets, and get that to look like, get that to perform like, you know, a I GDP think, or something. I think retain all that. Yeah, I think it's. I think improving a variety for like yield, um, taste, high growth, and all that kind of stuff is. I wouldn't call it easy, but it's easier than trying to create a new flavor. New. Yeah, but do you think like, there's a you hit a point where you can't? There's no point in trying to progress in that direction. Like no, I think it can be continually improved. I mean, it's just like any species. It's you're continually improving it just by breeding it. If you get better results than you were getting before, and there's more better kinds of flavors of wheat available today than there was 40 years ago, even with the lack of real breeding that really goes on. So the more people that actually engage in real breeding, it, the more you'll see this pop up rather than it just being. Um, a luck of the draw lottery type of thing I popped a bag seed and found something good if people actually were putting in lots of work you'd probably see more results Especially it's just statistics it was... I'm not saying anybody's doing anything bad or better or worse than the next guy I'm just saying the more people put into a project and the more seeds of it they grow out 
the more stuff you're going to find. It's Especially just if there's a, a known common objective, like here's exactly what we're breeding for. Here's what we're trying to achieve. Because now, now that you say it like that, it got me thinking about like the dart frog hobby like I was telling you before. Like mm. You look at some of these like locales or varieties that came into the hobby 20 years ago and you look at photos of them, like they were cool, but they aren't as nice as the ones that are captive bred 20 years later because... You know, I'm, I'm breeding 20 offspring, I'm picking the two nicest looking ones or the two that have the brightest, you know, head caps or whatever it is. Yeah. And then I'm giving you a pair and then you're getting offspring from those. And you know, it, 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 you can see over three or four generations how it can drastically change in like reptiles and amphibians. Like, exactly. it's crazy what they've done with fucking reptiles over the past like 20, 30 years. Exactly. Snake people, bro, they used to be like, a, they took a boa, you know what I mm -hmm. mean? One that came in from the wild, maybe every once in a while there'd be like an albino one out there or something. Mm -hmm. But you know, just because of simple fucking Darwinism, breeding. they don't last in the wild. But oh, as yeah, soon yeah. as you get them in the fucking in You see all these different. There's thousands of different kinds now. Right. All different kinds that mm -hmm. just didn't exist in the wild and that's just from a couple generations of selective, selective breeding breeding it's exactly crazy. yeah and so the, i don't think there really is a limit i think that the most difficult thing to try to do would be to like take a variety of seeds like let's say you know jack hare or something mm -hmm. and try to create og kush from it like trying to create a novel terpene profile from a pro from a plant or variety that doesn't have that profile without crossing it to the plant that you're trying to make it like is that's the most difficult. Like I said, improving yield, improving plant structure, improving all that stuff is relatively easy if you're just willing to put in generations of work and grow out the number of plants required to get the results necessary that for you to be successful. Um, trying to, you know, find Bubba Kush in Amnesia Haze seeds, it, it, I don't know if that's possible. And that's why, like, when I started growing <coughs> and I bought tens of thousands of dollars worth of Dutch and European seeds and realized I wasn't getting any terpene profiles like the stuff that I was buying in America, the weed I was buying here. I was like, I have to collect these clones. I'm not going to find the shit. I was growing through hundreds of seeds of all this Dutch stuff that I'd spent tons of money thinking I'm going to get stuff comparable to dog shit and Albert Walker and pineapple and all these other, you know, the lemon balm, all these other strains from up here. And I'm not finding it. And it's like, well, I'm not going to breed. I'm not going to create Albert Walker from... Dutch skunk number one seeds. It doesn't smell anything like it. It's not even close, even though they may even be related. It's just they've already bred away from that trait too far. The amount of work to try to go backwards is like insurmountable. So I need to acquire the clones themselves so that I can preserve those in seed form, at least for myself. It's just crazy, like we were talking about the, you know, the stuff that lies dormant or the shit that just pops up out of nowhere. And imagine if that happened with people, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You get an Asian dude and you get a, you know, whatever. Well, so to, to relate that, if, if you were to like go to China, right, and go look at like a million people that have children there, what are the odds that one of them looks like they're from Ireland? 
zero. <laughs> My understanding is that it would be zero as well. That's, and to me, that's like the idea of trying to find OG Kush in haze seeds, pure haze seeds, or pure whatever varieties. It's it's almost an, like you're just, it doesn't matter how many go through, but could you take like a, um, some ethnic group and then over like a hundred years of putting them on some remote island or a hundred generations of putting them on some remote island end up with people that look Irish potentially you I could potentially get there after like a thousand years it's probably everything's just a spectrum and I mean white people of... started black in Africa essentially according to evolutionary theory so you know if you can go if you can change the color of their skin. I don't see why you could change anything else over so enough you generations. Turn Urkel into Jack Herrera. Theoretically, that's is what I'm saying. It's possible, but it just might take such an absurd amount of time generations, yeah. and generations to get there that it's un impractical for us to think about breeding in that manner. But it, it's possible, right? Because we have evidence from most other evolution, the airy theory on this planet that humans did it over thousands of years and so have all kinds of other plants and species done it over thousands of years. The difference between a bonobo and a chimpanzee is uh, hundreds, thousands of examples. But we just don't, you just don't really know. But like I said, that, that, that was why I started collecting <coughs> varieties that had unique smells and flavors because I just knew that that was like trying to find an Irish person in a in China, right? From China, from Chinese parents. It's just I'm not. It's, un, it's so unrealistic because of the of the genetic background. It, but like I said, it's it's possible, I suppose, to evolve any species into having the traits that you're talking about. It's just crazy to think about, and that's why I mean. So that's the fun of breeding, right? You essentially play God. With well, the, yeah, and you don't, people. but you don't really know what the results are going to be. You just ha you just get to, you know, maybe that's why there's so many different things on this planet. Is God's just up there fucking fucking around? Let's see what happens. Platypus. <laughs> you know, let's just see if it fucking works. Slap it together, see if it works. Throw this thing in this habitat and see what kind of yeah what, what the butterfly effect is, you know. Pretty sure humans are about like that too. He was just like, you know, monkey and stupidity. <laughs> what are they gonna do to themselves next? I think it was monkey and alien, bro. I think aliens came down. They needed to do a little work down here. They didn't want to do it themselves. They hired monkeys. Sprinkle a little something in their coffee, made them just smart enough to do the job, you know, used them while they needed them, got what they needed here, and took off. And they just, just said, left us. Just said, you all yeah. figured out on your own. Yeah. You know? Totally. It's child of the corn. I mean, how's that not just as plausible as It's pretty tasty in the pipe, too. Yeah. I was going to say, I actually do like a lot of the pipe. Stony, too. For sure. That's, I guess, another thing too. It's like, okay, you might, you might be, it's kind of like a smorgasbord flavors, you know what I mean? There's, a, there's some, you know, crosses where you're like, okay, this is a very distinct profile and this is another one that's like distinct in its own right, but kind of similar, you know what I mean? Or this is 
five different things from all over the place. It's kind of like going up to the soda machine and just fucking orange soda, Pepsi, fucking Dr. Pepper, you know what I'm saying? And if that's the case, if I'm a kid and I'm pressing all the buttons, I'm just trying to get buzz. Exactly. You know? uh, it, this is kind of a smorgasbord of flavors, too. It really it, is. And it's having the exact same effect. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Kind of a little bit of everything mixed together. Yeah. It, like I said, it's sometimes you just got to go for it and make hybrids and see what happens. You just don't really know, and that, that's really the most fun part about breeding is just not knowing, and and knowing enough to not know. So I just try everything, and that's what people don't understand too, man. They only see like the successes. You know what I'm saying? Like for when, sure. they, when they think archive, they think about all the all the strains that you know you you become made popular over the years and are known for but they don't think about all the shit where you tried something and it didn't work you Tons. know what i'm saying like to to have that many winners you gotta have put up a lot of fucking shots you know what i mean mm -hmm. and i would say the the odds of being successful with breeding are lower than being good at hitting baseballs yeah. you know you'd be lucky if you got one out of three plants was a keeper quote unquote i mean my general rule of thumb is one to three percent of a population is something I would keep. So if you buy, I don't care what beans. cross. I don't care who made the seeds, whatever. Right? I've never really seen a population that's that much higher for a keeper for me. Right? Then like three to five percent would be the maximum I would theoretically have seen, and that's not even an accurate number because I only popped 50 or 100 seeds or something like that. I need like 5,000 seeds to get tell you, you know, I'm pretty confident across a large population you'd see this many keepers. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there, I would say there's all kinds of varieties where more than 50% of the plants are extremely high quality and keepers to 98% of the consumers out there. But that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the 2% that is worth breeding yeah. with. So, and that's how I try to continue to improve varieties is, ensure, is making sure I'm using plants that are in the top less than ideally 1% of the population. The more selective you are, the more, the, the, the longer it takes to make each jump, but the bigger those jumps are going to be. That's you know right. I mean? That's how I save myself time. You know, it was like the less selection I put into each generation, the more time I'm going to have to spend on the next generation selecting through the traits I don't want. And the more time I put into each generation to find the traits I do want, the more of those traits I'll get in the next generation. So it's just, you're just stacking the odds for yourself. That's the goal with breeding is to just find plants that fit goals that you have and stack those base hits until you start scoring runs you think there's any situations where you there you might need more than 100 seeds to really get an idea if something's worth i think 100 would give you an idea of whether or not that's what you want to work with but i think if you had a i would i would want to grow a thousand of something to make the most progress at a time if i could 10,000 is a little bit unrealistic unless you want to do um, genomic breeding where you, you start looking for traits and then just do, popping a lot of seeds but only growing the ones that have the genes that are on that you're looking for. But like I said, a lot of the time I'm not looking for something having a gene on. I'm just looking for a new combination of genes 
that have a new flavor and there's no way for me to know ahead of time to look for those genes to be turned on or turned off because I don't even have a plant to tell you that this is to this is what we're trying to replicate. <laughs> I'm trying to find something that's new that we don't have a plant that to, to reference to find. You wouldn't even know what you're testing for. Right, exactly. It's not until you find a plant that has a really unique smell or flavor, then you then you can identify what genes are responsible for that unique smell or flavor or potency. Then you can start doing genomic breeding. So you still have to start the process kind of with a traditional route, unless you were gifted, given, or just got lucky finding something with a set of traits you can identify and breed towards. And then that's really the whole goal of archiving unique varieties is you, you now have a base plant to reference for your breeding work. Whatever, if you're trying to, if you, that plant has traits that you want, you now have a plant to reference to try to use for that purpose, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, like you're just doing breeding and smoking it and determining determining how good it is, or if you're actually using a lab to look at the genes and identify genes that, uh, that you're trying to essentially um, go through a larger population and eliminate unnecessary plants before you even grow them. Do you look forward to a time in the future where like the the science side of it kind of takes over a little bit with like the gene testing and some of the other stuff where it might be like a like a theorized AI effect where like it's a build, it's a build, it's a build, and then it gets to this certain point where just like all of a sudden exponential, you know, progress is made in a very short period of time. You know, because like you said, it's kind of like I mean, there's you're looking, people doing it. Breeding's kind of like, like you said earlier, the analogy of looking through the keyhole and trying to see what's behind it. You know, yeah. there's kind of only one way to find out. You got to do the work. But it yeah. does seem like with some of this testing and technology and shit, it might provide some shortcuts. You know, it, it could for sure. And I think there's people that are working on that. I think it's particularly useful for uh, finding chemotypes, meaning like a CBD, CBG, THCV identifying the gene that is turned on for those cannabinoids and then being able to do the genomic reading and, and get rid of all the junk and, and only grow plants that have that gene on. I think that's a lot easier to do because you're, you're just looking for a, a novel cannabinoid to isolate. Whereas like trying to find something that smokes good is not just like one gene, you know? I guess I could see a use for like uh, people who have, if you did do selective breeding for those chemotypes and you have people who have, you know, specific ailments where like, okay, there's people CD, breeding for that CBDG already. CBDG like works great and for successful. nerve pain or yeah. whatever it is, you know, I think that's where you might see the most like scientific leaps as far as like ways that people could benefit, you know? A hundred percent. And they're already doing that. A lot of the CBD companies, they have pretty sophisticated, um, uh, genomic breeding like set up and there's other big companies that are getting into it too. But like I said, like, um, trying to, if it's a plant that's available in the marketplace, I, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is 
to make it financially viable, putting in all that work, you want to have it for a product that is unique. You don't want to somewhat proprietary. Yeah, you don't want to do it for like Blue Dream, you know, like making the very, very best Blue Dream may or may not have a good financial return. Like maybe it does because Blue Dream's still like a popular strain to sell, but it's such a low profit margin product that even if you do like genomic breeding to create like the ultra blue dream that's better than any blue dreams in history it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to find like producers that want to come pay you a lot of money to grow your ultra blue dream or not even a lot of money just enough to make the the business of doing that work uh I think in the short term, there's there have been companies that have made money selling genetics like that, but it's becoming limited because most of the companies that would pay that kind of money for that stuff were like MSOs. You know, they pay for like a you know one to one CBD THC or whatever it is, right? But they're not. I don't see how they're like all of those companies are exiting competitive markets yeah. like California and stuff. So obviously like paying for whatever the, those um, novel products were didn't save their business. No. That didn't resonate with the consumer regardless of how kind of cool maybe what they potentially did or created or product they created or product they bred it still didn't resonate with the consumer on at least the flower basis. Yeah, well, we could have told them that. Whereas there's people that that didn't spend any of the money that they did just breeding a little bit in their whatever setup they got and creating the biggest strains in the market. And, and those do resonate with consumers. And so why is that? And it's not really something that's determined by... Uh, a couple genes that are turned on. It has to be like a purple, like for example, Tropicana cookies. People love that stuff for whatever reason, or some people do. And it's, but it's because it's purple and that weird orange smell and flavor it's got, and it makes purple hash and it takes really great photos. And so my point is, is just that, uh, you wouldn't have like, that plant wouldn't have, if you were looking for a rec plant, you said, I want something with high THC because rec plants sell with high THC sell the best. You never would have grown out the seed that made Tropicana cookies. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So it's like Tropicana cookies, I think we can all agree, is an extremely huge strain in the marketplace, relatively speaking. It's had, a, it's, had its place, just like Tangy and everybody else the flavor of the month or flavor of a year. Um, There's always but, something filling that citrus pocket. Exactly. Calio, then it was yeah. Agent Orange, Tangerine Haze, Tangy. Yeah. I don't think there's any smoke that smells worse in the air. Right, Mimosa had its, had its... I fucking hate the smell of that turf <laughs> in the air, bro. That shit is foul. Right. I don't know why. I mean, I the don't, I don't like the taste of the flower either. I get why you smoke it in right. extract form, you know right. what I mean? Like, it's, it's a crazy turf profile. It's one of the strongest that there is, but nothing to me smells worse in the air than that shit, bro. For sure. There's certain stuff that, like I said, you walk into a room, somebody's smoking that, you go, what is that? 
I need to hit that. Tangy, I walk into a room, I go, you might not even need to smoke any weed. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it, so you see what I'm saying though, it's like with the, with the quantitative breeding, let's call it that, which means like looking for traits with data and then trying to find those plants for high THC or whatever else. It's just, you're gonna overlook a lot of stuff that you probably could have turned into a great market, marketable product. And it's because for most consumers of cannabis, the experience is still the most important thing. You might be able to sell them one time on high THC or this or that, but you're not really gonna make money in a competitive market until you can get them to come back and keep purchasing. And I don't think it'll ever change from being that, you know what I mean? Like as much as people might say, oh, I, I you know, even the like older people, oh, I just do my edibles. Like I'm not, I'm not a stoner, I don't smoke. I wouldn't smoke, I just do my edibles. But it's like, they want a certain result from their edible. If you don't deliver the result, if it tastes like shit, if it doesn't get you high, they're not gonna come back. Exactly. You know I mean? it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what it says on the packaging. Exactly. When it comes to a repeat buyer, like you're saying. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the day that test results for flour kind of because I don't think us or anybody that we smoked or that we smoke with, if we were to go into a dispensary and shop that way, we wouldn't be paying that much attention to what it says the THC percentage is on something. No. I like the idea of microbial testing, residual testing, that type of thing. I think we can all agree more, more testing when it comes to ensuring, you know, clean products is great, but I think the fact that the market is dominated based on a set of numbers which we have really no evidence matters in any measurable way at least not that we fully understand well it's like we were talking about last night there's over 200 known cannabinoids just recently an italian research group found a cannabinoid that's 30 times more potent than thc so all you would need is one percent of this in your whatever flower to make your, whatever that stuff tested in regular THC or in THCA and Delta 9 combined, it's gonna be that plus 30%. That's what it's gonna feel like. So it could be a 15% strain, but it's got this 1% uh, 30X THC molecule in it. And now it's a 45% strain basically and it's how it feels. And that makes sense too, because imagine if, okay, what if it had 5%? I mean, now you're talking about yeah. 150%. Well, and we're not even testing for that cannabinoid right now in our in anything you see in a shop. But doesn't that make sense though? Because there's some stuff where like we could sit here, you know, fresh in the morning, wake and bake session. There's some weed I could put in front of you. You could sit here and smoke six bowls. And it very well may be 25% THC and you probably won't feel a thing. And then there's other weed I can put in front of you. You'll smoke one fucking bowl, sit there for two minutes and you'll go, now I'm high. It may or may not be high. Okay, even if it's twice as high in THC. You smoked one-sixth the amount. Well, it's it like, shouldn't be by weight, by potency, mm -hmm. it shouldn't be that big of a difference regardless, you know? It should be like, I smoke enough of this, I'm gonna get high. Yeah. But there's certain stuff that just doesn't do much, and then there's certain stuff that like, way outpunches this weight class, you know what I mean? So that kind of lends itself to that type of thinking too, that there's just other shit, other interactions going on that we haven't figured out how to measure yet, you know? Well, and we have the turp, Terps and all that stuff, and people are starting to talk about that, and, and I agree with that too, having a, a, a impact on the effect. Mm -hmm. But we're still only looking at 
you know, less than 5% of the cannabinoids, which are the things that actually get you high. Like I understand That's people talk about it. I, I understand that people believe and feel like terpenes and the smell and the flavor get them high in addition to the cannabinoids, and that very well may be true. I'm not arguing that, but if you go smoke some limonene right now, it's not gonna make you feel high. But I guarantee you, if you smoke like a gram of that 1% 30x THC stuff, and no THC at all, you're probably gonna feel pretty high. You see what I'm saying? So it's like the fact that we're not looking at any of these other 180 plus cannabinoids into, in our, into our testing and to what means a strain is potent, means that we're we're not looking at the whole picture at all it'd be like taking a opium extract or not an opium extract but like a opiate cocktail like everything mixed together heroin morphine fentanyl carfentanyl vicodin pills like the, everything mixed together and then going and then snorting some of it and then saying it was for sure the fentanyl in that one that's that I'm getting fucked up from right now. Like, or only, or only testing that pill. Sorry, my better analogy would be only testing that pill for fentanyl. Well, and then the, say, the, the and then analogy. saying that the fentanyl is the potency of that pill, and it's like, no, there's all these other opiates in this pill, but you're only testing for one of them, and all these other ones could be getting you God knows how much higher. And when in reality, it's probably not any one drug. It's probably the interaction of one of those drugs with your blood pressure medication or whatever the other fucking thing is in there that we're not even thinking about or measuring in the moment. You right. Know? I feel just, like the interaction between terpenes and cannabinoids and all the other different compounds yeah. probably plays a massive role in the whole thing as well. Yeah. I don't think it's it's like having ingredients and you put them in a stew. Like you need all the ingredients in there and they all need to be in balance in order for you to get the desired result. You know That's what I, mean? I think too. And it's just, there's so many of them between cannabinoids and terpene profiles. Dude, it, it, there's no way to say that this one is more potent or that one's more potent. Like we're not even, even whatever data you have to support your argument, it doesn't mean that that's gonna be what people are experiencing because your data is incomplete. Your data of a 15 cannabinoid assay is not conclusive to the potency of a strain that could potentially have any of 200 plus cannabinoids in it. Like, how would you really know? If you're only testing for 15 out of 200, that's only 7.5% of the known. Or, I mean, let me just look up just so I know how many it is, but how many known cannabinoids? I feel like when they really have all that shit dialed in, whether it's 10, 20 years from now and they can test for every terpene, every cannabinoid, I feel like there will be a lot of relevations, some which will probably be surprising and some of which will probably be really obvious. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason that OG lasted a long time, you know? Right. It's because well, the first time I smoked OG, I got really fucking high. And then I smoked it a lot. And before, you know things got really crazy. It was like, okay, OG pretty consistently gets me higher than most other shit that I'm gonna say. And who knows if that's because of the THC, other cannabinoids that are in it, the terpene profile. There's too many to, that we don't test for. So here's, 
here's what I'm reading, right? Cannabis is a very complicated plant made up of hundreds of chemical compounds called cannabinoids, more than 100 of which have been identified and cause different effects. These cannabinoids bind to receptors already in the body, made up of what is called the endocannabinoid system. Then you have your CB1 and CB2 receptors in your brain. So it's, it's inconclusive how many total cannabinoids there are. Where is that coming from? This is just an article online, but it's th this is um, the same across all these articles. Huh. Yeah, well, I'll go to Wikipedia. Let's see what Wikipedia says. Just uh, at least 113 distinct phytocannabinoids have been isolated from cannabis. I'm sure when we have like a better understanding of that whole thing, it's going to kind of redefine the term of what exotic means. You know what I mean? Right. Exotic might not be something that has a really unique flavor profile. It might be a strain that has a high concentration of a really, really rare cannabinoid. You know what I mean? That's found in very few varieties. That's what I'm and, saying. And that, and think about that. You. That's why without, it has the potency. Without that testing, though, you may have never even thought to keep it it might have not looked good well you would have only good, kept it because good. you smoked it and it got you really high and you're like dude i don't know what it is about this plant it even tests low but i get super ripped from it and those mm -hmm. are like all those crazy weird plants that get or kept. it could be one of those you know sleeper things that's not really expressing itself but it's there laying dormant like we were talking about earlier so it has this really weird rare cannabinoid in it and it maybe it doesn't actually get you super high but when you breed it with this other strain that has this other super rare cannabinoid and you add these two unicorns together mm -hmm. you get a crazy result well and know? we don't even know all the cannabinoids yet like like there's 113 known and we've somewhat some of them study their effects there's supposedly hundreds i think it's over 200 that we like know exist in one way or another but i can't verify that i don't remember exactly i'd have to find an article or something but we're finding new ones all the time too right and with more research they'll probably continue to find more and more and more and that's like this <clears throat> italy research I was talking about, right? So researchers at Italy's University of Salento have discovered two new cannabinoids, right? So again, add two more to the list. And this will continue to happen because I mean, the, the cannabis produces so many different kinds and they have so many different varieties. And you know, these, these uh, research labs, they haven't tested like our libraries. This is just a weed they're getting access to to test, not the all the recreational plants and all the rare plants that are being held around the world. Um, they discovered two new cannabinoids, THCP and CBDP. And THC could be more potent than THC, according to an outline of the study by Grothop. In tests on mice, researchers found that THCP showed an affinity for the CB1 receptor more than 30-fold higher compared to the one reported for THC. The other compound, CBDP, reportedly doesn't bind well, which doesn't make the uh, cannabinoid a priority for further research. However, the researchers said that THCP should be included in the list of main phytocannabinoids to be determined for a correct evaluation of the pharmacological effect of the cannabis extracts administered to patients. So, um, 
The research brings the total number of discovered cannabinoids in the cannabis plant to 150. Though the researchers note that most of them have neither been isolated nor characterized. The two new cannabinoids were isolated and fully characterized by researchers and their absolute configuration was confirmed by a stereoselective synthesis. The researchers suggest that other varieties of cannabis may contain even higher percentages of THCP. Right. So, I mean, like, we're, we haven't even gotten into, like, the real pharmacological research of this plant. Everybody's sitting around saying they know what potency really means. It's like, we haven't even studied this shit yet. There's unknown cannabinoids that haven't even been isolated, much less determined what their potency and what they do. And we're all sitting around and saying THC is the only thing that gets you high. Right, settlers that just hit the West Coast and they think they know every animal that lives in the United States. Right, exactly. It's just like, you're. we just got here. You, we really don't know. So let's just start with the stuff around us and know that we still have a lot of exploring to do. What if there's a future for like... GMO manipulation with weed, where like there they, is, they take that. It's already happening. They take that cannabinoid that won't bind for. That's already reason, happening. And they tweak something to make it to where it will bind, and then it is. Or you just further Or you just genetically engineer the plant to produce tons of THCP only and no THC, and now you got twenty five percent THCP, and this shit feels like you're taking a roller coaster ride. I mean, like. <laughs> <laughs> There's no limit, and that's why you know we got ended up on this because you asked what's the limit of this, right? What's the limit of what you could do with breeding? And it's like there really isn't one. There's it's no with limit. not not with the, the type of plant this is. This is. It's we're not looking for just one cannabinoid. We don't even know what we're looking for still yet. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done before we even know where we currently stand in terms of potential. It is crazy. Like you look over there, you see that nug and you just think like weed. That's just THC, some terps, you know, some cannabinoids, no big deal. But if you actually talk about it like this and you think about it like this, it's, you know, it's almost like each fucking nug is its own contained galaxy with fucking planets and, you know, all types of shit. You know? Planets of potency. I don't know, man. Would you ever smoke GMO weed? Uh, uh, I wouldn't smoke it all the time. I would try it though. Just, just for research purposes? Yeah, I wouldn't smoke it all the time though. Cause you never know what genes may have also inadvertently gotten corrupted or changed or, or the genes that they did turn on for the trait to make it do that. Don't create something else that's also maybe, um, carcinogenic or dangerous or something that they're not like that. testing for maybe not even aware of not aware of and i don't want to be the guinea pig yeah. you know i don't want to be the one to smoke it and you know as a result of getting 30x thcp it also creates hydrogen cyanide and then i smoke the first bowl and you know get really high and die Somebody's got to do it, man. You just never know. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure there's ways to test for it. I'm just kind of being, uh, I'm exaggerating the risk potentially, but um, it, it is, there are things to be concerned about. Let's put it that way. 
It's really interesting to think about though, like what possibilities may be feasible down the road, you know? Mm -hmm. How this shit all, I mean, it looks so different than it did 20 years ago, but. Especially you hear, you always hear like people our parents age talk about like, you know, show your fucking grandma a nug, you know what I mean? For sure. And they never see anything like that, you know? Because the weed that they, you know, our, even our parents, like the weed they saw in the 70s, it didn't look fun. They never in their life saw anything that looked anything like this, you know? Not in the 70s, but by the 80s, people were growing good indoor. Like this? Pretty much. That's crazy. Imagine ha you know, having this in fucking 1982. At one point, uh, people were like, thought that weed was worse than brick weed and stuff because they were like, why is it green? Because they were just so used to fucking- Yeah, because all weed was Mexican brown swag. and more, yeah. They're like, why is, I don't, it doesn't look like weed <laughs> to them. Wouldn't that, isn't that instant headache though? Like you smoke, how much of that shit you gotta smoke to actually get high? Maybe they weren't smoking enough to get a headache. Well, especially because back then everything was just these like little pinner skinny joints and shit, you know? That's how yeah. people smoked back then. So mm -hmm. how were you actually getting high smoking pinner joints of Mexican brickweed? Drink a lot of alcohol. <laughs> if, you, if they smoke this kind of weed and drink as much alcohol as they did, they they get the spins every night. That one turned off. Oh, well, at least we still got the main one. We're down to one cam, guys. Doesn't mean we can't still smoke that one out plenty. But yeah, I mean, there's there's no limit. Like I said, the, the I was really excited when that article came out with the Italian researchers a few years ago because it just confirmed what I've been saying for a long time. Right, that there's hundreds of cannabinoids. We don't know what they all do. And to sit here and act like potency is only tied to the THC percentage that you're getting sold is just not accurate. I'm not saying it's, um, un, uh, it's not useful. I'm just saying that it's not the true answer. And because like before, you know, 20 years ago, I would, the strains that we've now gotten tested that only test 15 to 22%, like OG or uh, Purple Indica or Albert Walker, um, those strains, when people were, or like the dog shit actually test pretty high, um, people always said the Purple Indica was the most potent strain. They always said it was the, like, the, that's the knockout power. That's the shut up, sit down and shut up weed. I'll just, I, that shit knocks me out. I don't want it. Either people be like, I don't even want it. Yeah. They wouldn't even want it. And it's like, it tests really low, but most people considered it one of the most potent varieties. Why is that? Well, maybe it's not just THC. And that was always my argument. I think that's probably the best example too of like, cause that, you know, it's been around forever, like a good solid, you know, old The purple indica purple. has been around since the eighties. And so you see that and that kind of lends credence to that right away where you go, okay, this does, I mean, you're looking at it, it's not even that frosty, you know what I mean? So even before testing, you knew like, this is probably not that high in THC, not that high in what you would think is traditional potency, but there's definitely something about like a, a super, you know, couch lock, indigo, purple strain. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's fucking 12%, it's still gonna knock your socks off. Even know? Bubba. 
Bubba Teslo. Everyone always talked about how knockout Bubba was. Is Bubba Teslo usually? Yeah. It's funny because that's one that actually look, looking at it, a lot of different Bubba cuts. So it's yeah. pretty pretty frosty. Definitely sure. like really meaty nugs too that have like a you know a lot of body to them, mm -hmm. real earthy, but like usually pretty densely covered, you know. Agreed. That's, and it's that's just what it is. That's another one that's like always, you know, pretty consistently gonna be heavy, you know. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter what the test results are gonna say on that. I'm hoping we get to a point, probably might might not be in our lifetimes, but some point in the future where like all that shit is understood and it's relative, you know, testing. So instead of you walk into a, a dispensary and they go, what are you looking for? Indica or sativa? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, what is your, especially, I guess I'm thinking more for like people who actually need it for medical reasons. What is your ailment? Oh, we actually know what is scientifically proven to cure what Good cannabinoid. Do mixture yeah. yeah yeah i mean i think there's a lot of um uh pharma pharmacological type companies right or pharmaceutical companies that are that's what they're trying to do as a business is come up with novel cannabinoid combinations that they can patent for certain ailments that's like the biotech play in the weed space package branded and marketed for specific use cases yeah whether it's epilepsy or seizures or they if they want to find a novel cannabinoid a unique cannabinoid if they could or a unique combination of cannabinoids that um is provable in blind trials that it essentially works for whatever disease they say it's working for because then if they're able to they can then patent that I was just product ask, can you and then they can basically own the market for that for seven or 21 years. I can't remember what um, pharmaceutical patents last for. You can't patent just a specific cannabinoid isolated though, right? You could for a specific ailment. For a specific use. Like we have the patent on, you know, CBG for the use of X. Yeah. Huh. I imagine there's probably plenty of that. Because I believe um, GW Pharmaceuticals has some patents for like uh, CBD ratios higher than one to one or two to one for certain things. I, I'd have to look them up. I mean, you have to. You can just look up the patents and you can find them. Um, but they're out there because the there are um, cannabinoid uh, pharmaceutical products out there that you can get from doctors. Around the world, there are. It's interesting. I guess that's kind of the other side of the industry and the progression of you know legal weed or like at least weed science that not, isn't necessarily my world. Like I don't pay attention to really. Totally. But there's probably a lot of interesting shit going on over there that I'm just not aware of. You know. There is, and I, and I would love to see like a a much better relationship between that community and the qualitative side of this because I think a lot of progress could be made on plants that they simply don't have access to and we don't have access to the technology and there's just a lot of money that's I think spent on wild goose chases when we could actually find the results a lot faster. Um, but you know most of those guys are all suits trying to take everything take you to the cleaners so there's a big trust issue because frankly they have a, they have a really bad reputation 
um, you know, the Canadian legal cannabis market and the absolute Ponzi schemes that were run out of that country in the cannabis space. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if it was a Ponzi, it was just a fraud basically. They're just saying they can do everything. They can build millions of square feet of weed and sell it. They don't know the first thing about growing and selling weed and they sold the public on it and took the public to the cleaners on it. And a lot of people lost a lot of money in a lot of that. Fucked up some markets too. Exactly. And, and the funniest part is <laughs> the government allowed to, it to happen and the government's the biggest loser because they're the ones that collect tax revenue and do nothing to earn the money, right? I mean, like state of Washington, they collect 33% of the revenue. So they don't have anything into growing it. They don't have anything into selling it. They don't have no rent, no nothing. And they're taking home a third of the money. <laughs> that's cumulatively at every level of the process that's what they originally advocated for but it ended up being just 33 percent total right who does the tax fall on though on the, the retail. operator or yeah. the retail on the retail so they basically charge a 3x markup on any product 3.2x actually which basically makes think... any good product more expensive than it should be I still think that's probably better for the market than what they've done in California, though. Maybe. You know, where you tax it at intensely at every level, you know, to where it turns the consumer. Hey, it's so expensive by the end that it just turns the consumer off and then just turns them right back to the black market and there goes your tax revenue. Exactly. Well, and that's the problem is they allowed way too much production. And then the government's the biggest loser because the government used to make let's say they make a third of the money on um, a $300 ounce, back when it was 300 bucks an ounce, mm -hmm. right? They get a hundred bucks on an ounce of consumption. Now that's a $30 ounce. They get $10 on an ounce of consumption. So they just, you know, chop their shit 10X for the same amount of consumption. And so, someone's gonna, a $30 ounce and a $300 ounce last someone the same amount of time. So. At the end of the day, the government just needs to stay out of the business and let the free market do what it's going to do. It doesn't, you know, there will be people that grow way too much and they'll fail and then it, it all, it's, it's all happening anyways, but they stalled the, the situation depending on which state you're talking about because of shitty regulations that prevented uh, a free market to occur. I saw Newsom saying end of last year he was talking about he's gonna look at lowering taxes, but I just can't see that happening. When do, when does a state government or the federal government ever move backwards on any kind of fucking taxes? They don't because there's too many people that rely on that money for their programs. Or just any type of overreach when it comes to freedom, taxation. Well, if you, well, that's what, if you take taxes away, it means you have to eliminate programs. If you eliminate programs, those people stop voting for you. But what new programs did we get as a result of all these new taxes? Well, I think a lot of the money goes to cops. So you're going to have all the cops saying, you know, it's a liberal state we want our money. wants to defund the police. And welcome to politics, where nothing makes sense. And they still blow all your money. You know, when I <laughs> when I moved out to Colorado, that was I think two years after they legalized out there. Yeah, and, something like that. And the, everybody I talked to out there, especially like people who weren't necessarily into weed, all had a positive 
things to say about what legalization had done for the community. Everybody was talking about how they had been fixing a bunch of roads, how they had been doing a bunch of city projects, and mm -hmm. supposedly with all this revenue that they were making from weed taxes. I never saw any of that shit in California. You right. Know? I mean, I was there for the start of you know wreck and all that. Yeah, shit. I'd have to look at like where the money goes in California versus Colorado, but I yeah, you're right. That but basically, you have to get all rid the of tax money in California. Yeah, whatever though. Yeah, well, it sure all that money in California sure isn't making it a better place to live. Second highest taxes, I think we're forty second in roads and like. Well, it's definitely probably the the highest collector of taxes in the nation in terms of number of dollars. So yeah, no, I would guess. Yeah, them or New York, would it have because to be the population? Yeah, New York yeah, is the highest taxes percentage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying. I bet there's I bet there's more people being taxed. Like I think I, let's look it up. And, and New York is just because of New York City. I think New York City taxes are a lot higher. I think if you Agreed. live in upstate New York, it's not it's much more normal, right? Yeah. So that's just a pocket. California is the whole entire state gets taxed like that. Just blanket tax, you know. I don't know, man. States with the highest tax revenue. The states with the highest tax revenue should have all the best of the shit that taxes supposedly go to pay for. They should have the best social programs. They should have the best infrastructure. Yeah, California. <laughs> uh, $280 billion a year they collect in taxes. And next is New York at $117 billion a year. Damn. So California is down here three times. The next biggest state. Yeah, or it's it's a uh, two, you know, two and little over two, two. Is and that all fifty states? Yeah. What's the, who's fifty? Uh. Be like Alaska. Oh, Alaska. Yeah, obviously. But basically, every state. I mean, you know, every state. The only states with more than fifty billion a year in taxes, total taxes, are New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Florida, Illinois, Texas, and New York. Like everyone's a less than a hundred, you know. Every state is less than a hundred million, except for New York. Well, and isn't Florida like a low state income tax or no state? Yeah, income but tax they have, they, but they still have sales tax. Yeah. So and people spend a lot of money in Florida. Or like out here, there's no sales tax. In Oregon, yeah. I know. But my point is, they're spending two hundred eighty billion dollars a year in taxes, which is, it, you know, more than two times any other state, and it's getting worse by the day. The quality that is of living. Crazy when you really think about that number. Yeah. And then you really think about all the fucking problems and the fact that people are fucking leaving in masses, bro. Yeah, millions of people. More, I think it's the last two years in a row, maybe three years in a row, more people have left California than any other state. Yeah. So it's like, how is that? I feel like if all these uh, defense contractors, BlackRock and Raytheon and shit, weren't buying up all these homes, you've seen this shit where they're just buying up yeah, investment firms of, yeah. of, of uh, family homes. Like, otherwise, 
the housing market would have to come down, right? Or it would equalize at least with all those people leaving. The demand would be less and less and less. Prices you would think should so. start coming down. You'd think so. Well, this is the third year in a row of the exodus, and but prices there's no. Budged. Yeah, there's no inventory because investment firms keep buying it and turning it into rentals. How the fuck is that allowed, bro? Well. I think it should be allowed to be done, but if that's the case, get the government out of uh, FHA contractors, though? out of FHA loans. Not defense contractors. I mean, some, no, some of them are defense maybe. contractors, literally buying up fucking property. Well, I mean, like anybody's free to make. Invest. Here's the thing: is if you got the government out of um, loaning the money to the American public to purchase these homes, the price of these homes would be way less. And they wouldn't be nearly as attractive for all these investment companies to invest in because rents would be way less. It'd be cheaper to build a house. You see what I'm saying? It's like it's all part of the same problem, right? Which is that the government is essentially printing money to give it to people that aren't credit worthy. That's why it's a FHA backed loan. Because if it, if you were if the banks did, didn't if the banks knew that they weren't gonna get bailed out by the federal government like they did in 2008. They wouldn't make the loans to these people that don't have that good of credit and don't have enough of a down payment and can only get a 5% down payment. It would be like it was back in the 1950s where it was 25% down or 50% down. It was like, you're not really serious about buying a house until you got 25% down. Really? Cause like, what do you have to lose in buying a house then if you don't, can put, if you can buy a house for zero down. And everybody owns a house. Exactly. And what does that make the price of houses go? Way up. Because you got way more buyers. So if the government's in the business of making people buyers, that's going to make the price of housing higher. And then now it's just inflation. It's the government printing money. And, and like I said, the government's, or I mean the banks print the money with their fractional reserve lending. But they wouldn't take on that much risk and that much leverage if they knew that the federal government wasn't going to back their asses up. Otherwise, it would all go belly up and um, the, all the homes would go into foreclosure. All the, I mean, it would really collapse. But then your price of housing would be $100,000 for a house like it was back in the 80s after really high interest rates. Wouldn't have this elevated pricing. The interest rate thing is crazy too. When right. You look at it's got to be the, the at maybe maybe not the it's got to be the biggest jump highest in twenty years. Right? Well, but it was two years ago. Average interest rate was what two and oh, a half. Oh yeah, it's one of the fastest in history. Now it's six or fastest and a half in history. Or whatever. Yeah, but still hasn't stopped inflation. I saw like, the Fed came out and said they're going to lower next year, probably quarterly, like a quarter point. But I don't think they said that. Did they? Yeah, I saw Jerome Powell said that. Oh. Well, that, I mean, all that's going to be is more inflation. Like, here's the crazy part. is like we had 9% inflation or whatever, right? Well, to get back to an average of 2% inflation, that means we need to have like negative 7 inflation the next year. Going from 9% inflation to like 3.5% inflation is not a reduction in inflation. No. I, it's can't. still, over time, a 6 or 7 plus percent inflation. And that's their manipulated inflation CPI numbers, not using uh, real rent numbers and real economic data. It's the fudged one that they changed in the late 70s. What, um, the CPI is a consumer price index. It's how they judge inflation. And it's based on 
all these different parts of the economy, right? Like wholesale goods and housing and all this other shit. And they like say, this is what the overall inflation is. And if you just change some of the numbers around, you like, I think the one that they changed was like owner equivalent rent, which was like how they determine what people are paying for rent in their areas. And like, it's just not accurate. And all these things aren't accurate, but it makes the, but they do it like that because they want to make the CPI lower so that the government can um, inflate money more easily. Like if, if real inflation is 5%, but you report it at 2%, you, you can get away with it. to play with. Exactly. Yeah. And that's more money, that, that 3% is more money that the government can spend. And that's their whole goal is to spend more money than they have. That's why we're 33 trillion in debt. <laughs> like that, like you can't say that that's not their goal because that's all they do is find places that have money, social security. And they go, we're going to spend that today and we'll see if they can make it back tomorrow. And it's like, no, that shit's going to be broke. There's it's less people paying it. That the conversation is never even to reduce the debt or to eliminate some of the debt. It's always to slow the growth of the debt, you know. Or when people do say reduce the debt, they don't actually mean that. Yeah, they, they don't mean going negative. They possible. just say reducing the increase. Yeah, reducing the rate at which we're increasing, which That's is right. also fucking insane when you look it's at still what increasing. it was five years ago. Yeah, and like how much it was growing up in the '90s and in the 2000s, and then from like 2018 and beyond it's just like insane it just all seems like something has to give at some point right like some pressure valve is going to pop at some point i can't wait i don't know which part of it is going to be you think it's the housing market will eventually crash do you think it's the entire economy i think they're trying market? to engineer slavery for everybody and then they're going to bring in ubi and then just i think that's what they're trying to do i mean i don't know if that's going to work Right? I, I don't know if there's enough people that are going to go along with that. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, look at COVID, right? So, I don't know, man. I'm just, just saying. I think Americans as a whole will go along with just about anything, you know, for the most part, you know. Well, will the world, you know? Who knows, man? I don't know. You know where I'll be. <laughs> well, that's the toughest part, right? It's like, even if you could get over on one population how would you make that like a global thing which is what you'd have to do otherwise people would move to a new patch of dirt you know and that's what they're trying to do though they're trying to make a global thing because they're trying to tie everything to your cell phone and make that your fucking but your hall pass your hall pass for the world and it's got your fucking vaccine records on it all night social credit score on there and it shut you off at any time you start saying what they don't like they just shut you down well your hall pass is revoked you can't do banking you can't do nothing i mean you saw what they did to the truckers in canada you saw they were just revolting they weren't even or they weren't even revolting they were just protesting outside of the capital right it, like the thing with the canadian truckers like 95 percent of them were vaccinated they weren't even anti-vaxxers they were just anti-forcing people to do it to work. It's like, they, like these people were 95% in bed with you on getting this experimental vaccine for a disease that wasn't killing not, but less than 1% of the people. They're fully on board with that and you turn them into your enemies by telling them that their friends that want to make a decision about their health aren't allowed to do that 
and keep their job. And that was crazy because they just froze all their funds, all so that donation. Yeah. They're just like, oh yeah, you thought that was going to them? Nah, we'll take that. Exactly. <laughs> nice try. Exactly. And that, that, if that they weren't even free, doing anything wrong, but like honking their horns. If that doesn't freak people out about the future of currency and automation and being able to track every single purchase and every dollar you spend, I don't know what will, you know what I mean? Side times have come. It's, uh, it's weird to me that people are so willing to accept that, but it's also not because people will always take convenience, you know? Yeah. The average human doesn't want to go an inch out of their way if they can give up a little freedom and get something easier, you know? And well, that's the, the problem. Well, it, does, it didn't take but, you know, a small percentage of the population to fight the British off. And, um, you know, that, that may it's be what... time, though, bro. I agree. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that it doesn't take that many discontent people to make a change. You just have to be organized. And the government's doing... Oh, sorry. Doing everything, <laughs> doing everything they can to uh, stop you from fucking organizing right just like the fbi january 6th is now essentially a hoax we now know well i knew that as soon as they had the fucking F was it the fbi director or whatever the lady oh yeah he's like we don't know how many people were there yeah like did you, you have had anybody, anybody there at all any asian provocateurs there the fbi because that one guy was i forget his name but they know the guy jeremy ray or whatever, whatever his name was he was one saying let's ray. go into the capitol let's go you know he was the guy leading the whole fucking charge and he's supposedly fbi like yeah what, what there's no explanation for this there's no Y'all don't have an easy answer? Why? That that should be a... I just want to know whose cocaine it was. I think we all know whose cocaine it was. That's right. <laughs> Mr. Parmesan Cheese. The Parmesan Don up in the White House. Better get out of here. <laughs> Stone, I got to piss. I'm going into Hunter Biden talk. Got to get out of here. Parmesan Don out. Later.